and welcome to the Books on Asia podcast, sponsored by Stonebridge Press, publisher of Fine Books on Asia for over 30 years, located at www.stonebridge.com. And I'm your host, Amy Chavez. And today I'm talking with author Robert Whiting. Many of you will be already familiar with his books, such as his baseball books, You Gotta Have Wa, and The Samurai Way of Baseball. He's also penned Tokyo Underworld, The Fast Times and Hard Life of an American Gangster in Japan, and today he's going to talk about his upcoming book, Tokyo Junkie, 60 Years of Bright Lights and Back Alleys and Baseball. Today we're talking at the Foreign Correspondence Club of Japan in Tokyo. So I understand you came in 1962, yes. is that correct? I hear you came over with the Air Force, but the, you also went to school here. So what was the relationship between those two periods? Well, I was living at home in Northern California. Going, it was in the, my first year at university there, Humboldt State University. And I was having all sorts of problems, uh, personal problems, family problems. So I joined the Air Force and they sent me to Japan. They put me through this electronic intelligence school. You know, they give you a battery of tests when you go in the military and they figure out what you're suited for. So I wound up working for the CIA and the NSA. It's a joint operation at Fuchu Air Station outside Tokyo. They were doing uh, secret flights over China and Russia several times a week, and my job was to analyze the tapes and recording, the <clears throat> recordings and the photographs that they brought back. Japan, uh, Tokyo at that time was tearing itself apart to get ready for the Olympics, and it, it was really uh, an intoxicating atmosphere. It was only two years away, right, at that point? Yeah, you could stand down on Skiabashi, and you, one side of the street they'd be putting a building up, on the other they'd be tearing it down. And it was just like that all over the city. You'd stay overnight, you know, at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, the construction lights would go on and they start digging up the streets to build the, the subways. To get to sleep, people had to, they had to have black curtains covered, thick black curtains covering the windows. And you had to wear earplugs because this power driver was going on and on and on all night. And I remember this, reading this story about a kid who was studying to get into Wasabi University. It was a Ronin. He couldn't stand the noise, and he just went down and put his head under the power driver, killed himself. Wow. It, you know, I decided that when my military service was up, I got a discharge, and I went to, I would stay and go to Sophia University here. And it was just so, I couldn't imagine going back to the States. It was just so exciting being in Tokyo. Absolutely, especially at that time, right? And um, you studied politics, right? In, in and politics, right. But the thing that they did was when the Japanese got the bid to hold the Olympics in 1958, people wondered how is the city ever going to be ready? They only had one five-star hotel that was the Imperial, which was really moldy and falling apart. They had no highway system. The infant mortality rate was really high. Uh, you couldn't drink the water. 25%, only 25% of all the buildings in Tokyo had flush toilets. And in a matter of five years, they put up 10,000 new buildings, uh, two new subway lines, uh, eight overhead expressways, monorail from Haneda into the into Hamamatsucho, and the bullet train. 
And it, it was so impressive, the transformation. They historians say it's the greatest urban transformation in history that the James Bond people came to Tokyo and filmed the movie Only Live Twice. That was in 1965, 66, and then it came out in 67. So it was just like night and day. It yeah, it's only 10 years after the occupation, right? That uh, occupation ended in four, in 52, right, that's right. Yeah. So yeah. that's quite a, you know, a big jump for Japan. For it was sure. amazing, absolutely amazing. And the uh, atmosphere in the air was just electric. Uh, if you can be addicted to just a plain air, it happened to me. It was just something. But isn't it just like Japan to reinvent itself? Because starting with the, the Meiji Restoration, right? And then J Japan was just kind of like living it up and living the high life and uh, industrializing. And then came along World War II and it, of course it took a big step back. And then right. after then the occupation and after that, of course, they had the Olympics. And then they went on to the bubble era. And so they seemed to just be able to bounce back from from nothing. Well, one thing I learned when writing this book was that you notice so you know the past twenty or thirty years a lot of people, you know, don't even pay attention to it because they think that the center of Tokyo was Tokyo Tower and everybody goes to the Osaka Canon Temple and, and uh, that's in the fish market and that's Tokyo. But uh, there's a whole new city center that's built up in Odaiba. And where I live now in Toyosu, it's a whole another city that is now the center of Tokyo, and people will see that, you know, internationally when the Olympics, if it's held next year. My first impression of Tokyo in, in 1962 was how crowded it was, how packed, jam-packed everything was, and the government realized that they had to do something about it because it was just too congested. And that's when they started planning this new city in Odaiba. That's it. I think Rainbow Bridge was built in the 1990s, and uh, the Hilton Hotel opened up then. Uh, so, as you know, even through all the you know the, the bubble, the crash of the bubble, and the and lost the decade, and, and the earthquakes, <laughs> they still kept building. And it's amazing all this this you know the architecture that they put up over the years. You tend to uh, take big subjects mm. and then put them into a book, like you gotta have wah. Right. right? And so you've got this idea of wah and harmony and baseball. And then the meaning of Ichiro, right? You, right. you know, all of that. Then we come up with Tokyo Junkie. Right. <laughs> so what, what's the junkie part of it? Well, to, I just became addicted to Tokyo. You know, I found that I couldn't stay away from it. I, I left I, after by 1972, I, I, the beginning of the year, I left Tokyo and swore I would never come back. Oh, really? I graduated and I got a nice job at a, a Japanese company. I was a salary man. I was making good money. And I just was living, I was you know, like uh, 10 minutes to Kabukicho. I was out every night. Was this the Britannica job? Yes. Okay. But, but it was... Uh, owned by Japanese and it was run by Japanese and I had to do everything the Japanese way which means getting drunk every night like my fellow workers did but you know I started hanging out with uh, Yakuza I became very close friends with this one guy in the Sumiyoshi and I just became I had a really uh, led a dissolute life and I I did this project for them made a lot of money for them 
So they offered me a promotion and a, they were going to give me one of these Western style apartments, raise my salary, and all I had to do was sign the paper and I couldn't do it. I surprised me. I just, something in me said, don't do it. You're making a huge mistake because you'll wind up an alcoholic and a degenerate and uh, uh, probably, you know, jump, out, jump off a building before you leave. <laughs> so I moved back to New York. I moved to New York. I was I'd never lived there before, but I just wanted to see what I was made of. I was, you know, like 28 or 29 years old. And that's how I wound up writing Chrysanthemum and the Bat because... Oh, so that happened when you went back to New York. That was 72, 73 is when I started writing the book. Because my field of expertise was politics. You know, I had a degree in political science and I, I was, my professor had introduced me to Tsuneo Watanabe, the head of the Yogiari Empire. And I went to his house three times a week for a year, tutoring him, and, but he gave me this great education on politics in return. So I knew that subject but nobody in New York was interested, nor they, were they interested in the, the Olympic transformation or the life of the salaryman or anything else. But when I started talking about baseball, I became a baseball fan in the beginning because it was the only thing I could understand on television. They would have right. every other word would be out, to safe, right. the strike. <laughs> it's a lot of English used in it, isn't there? And uh, so I would tell them about Sadahara Oh, how he would practice uh, his spatting swing with a samurai sword, a long sword. And he would suspend a piece of paper from the ceiling, and, you know, 8 by 11, A4 size, and slice it in half with a sword, which is harder than it looks because the air flow from the swing will push the paper out of the way, so you have to break your wrist at just the right moment and cut down. And that's how he developed really strong wrists and was able to hit so many home runs. Were you a baseball fan in the States when you were there as well? Yeah, I like Because you were in New I grew up a fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers okay. and then the San Francisco, the Giants. The Giants. Giants moved to San Francisco. So I was a fan, and that's the thing that gave me a connection uh, to Tokyo was there'd be baseball on every night nationwide. The Giants came through on every single night. 25 million people watched them. And there also, you know, a couple of foreigners, Gaiji, they were called on, on the team, so it gave you, a, you know, something to relate to. Yeah, and you wrote a lot about that. Uh, Daryl Spencer was the one guy that I got to know really well. And so I started telling these stories about how Daryl Spencer was, was on the, <laughs> the verge of becoming the first foreigner to ever win a home run title, and suddenly all the pitchers started walking him because they thought it would be a loss of face for the to Japanese baseball to have a foreigner win the home run crown. So I would tell people that in New York and they, and one thing led to another and I got pushed to write a book. So I've never written a book before. I didn't know how to write a book. I was afraid to. And then I started this, I guess you don't have what it takes, Whiting. And then that yeah. was enough for, so I went to Barnes & Noble and got a book about how to write nonfiction. Right. And I <laughs> It wasn't very good, but it got published. And then the I remember the day I finished, I had a contract and I turned it in. It was August 1975. I was living in West 82nd Street, New York, in Central Park West on the fourth floor, fourth floor walk up. 
My rent was $240 a month and I had $120 in the bank. And I turned in the book and I was wondering, how in the heck am I going to uh, make a living? What am I going to do? And I was thinking about maybe I could go, you know, drive a cab because I had a driver's license. And the phone rang and it was Time Life. And it was this project that had been discussed a couple of years earlier. I just completely forgotten about it. And they said, how would you like to go back to Tokyo and work for us? So they flew me back to Tokyo, put me up in the Hotel New Otani. <laughs> Got me an apartment in Riki Mansion, the Riki Dozan complex. Yeah. And then Chrysanthemum of that, the, the uh, Japanese translation of it came out and it was a bestseller and the phone started ringing and I, people asking me to write magazines. I did stuff for airline magazines, Sports Illustrated, uh, Bungei Shuju in Japan. And that was all because of the Japanese version of the book, is yes. that correct? Because I've heard that you've made more money with the Japanese books than the English, which makes a lot of sense because there's a much bigger market, isn't there? Well, you got to have WA made more money in the States. That sold Did a it? lot. That was, that's in its 25th printing now. It sold that's about amazing. It's such a good book. And one of the reasons it's such a good book is you're such a good storyteller. And uh, that's a thread that goes through all of your books. The Tokyo Underworld. I'm not particularly interested in the underworld. Of course, I got the book because it was Robert Whiting and I loved his baseball books. Uh, the way you tell the stories, and, and like you didn't even meet uh, Zapetti until the very end, from what I understand. And all of that research, the, the hundred books you have to read and the hundred you know, people you interview, and then you sit down to write a book. I wanted writing about Ricky Dozan. You know, Ricky Dozan, for those of you who know, is this iconic uh, sports hero that introduced professional wrestling in Japan in the 50s and would beat up these larger, stronger American guys. That was and, a fantastic story. And he was Korean, right? And he hid the fact that he was Korean, right? And they would choreograph all these, these dramatic wins. He would take all this punishment at the last minute. He'd explode into the fury of karate chops and win. But he was... Uh, enormously wealthy and he got he wound up getting into a fight with the Yakuza at a nightclub and got stabbed and uh, he died in the hospital uh, a couple of weeks later uh, but his uh, widow was my landlady and there were all these gangsters hanging around for protection and I lived on the seventh floor of the building and on the eighth floor in the penthouse was where this professional wrestler giant Baba lived he was six feet eight inches tall and weighed about 220 pounds. And uh, I could hear him every night, he'd be practicing his falls. You know, the ceiling would shake and the plaster would come down. But I got to know him because he hung out at the restaurant next door. He was quite friendly. Sitting there in a the restaurant one night and this gangster, one of the gangsters was giving me a hard time. He was really drunk out of his mind. And he was hanging all over me and he says, oh, Whiting son, you're my favorite guy, Gene. Oh, I'm gonna lick him my ear. And uh, Baba was there, and he just came along and picked the guy up by the collar and said, "Let's go." <laughs> so anyway, that was uh, yeah. interesting experience, and I had no idea about the background of Ricky Dozan until I started writing Tokyo Underworld, and that's when I learned it all. Oh, it sounds like a fantastic character. 
And when you go to put all that or in the organization, put it all together, what kind of reader do you have in mind? Well, I write for myself. I, if I write something and I'm laughing while I quote some, you know, writings of this quote that somebody makes or some anecdote or bizarre fact that I dug up, if I laugh, then uh, I know other people will. I have a rule that on a 200, a double-spaced page of 250 words, there has to be at least four jolts. And by jolts, I mean something that will make a person stop. So, wow. Yeah. That, I never heard that before. I didn't know that. Oh, that's really funny. Or, wow. Four for each page. That's, that packs but, in a lot, doesn't it? When I wrote Chrysanthemum Bell, I didn't know how to write. And it was a badly written book. And it was amateurish. You can see it. Because I got these, because of that book, I got these opportunities to write. And Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours that you need to become proficient in something. So I put, that was 10 years worth of work. And I was, uh, I mean, really churning it out. And by the time you got to have walking around, I knew what I was doing. Right. And uh, I'd become friends with David Halberstam. Uh, who was in Japan during the reckoning, his advice was always focus on the people, not the message, because it's the people that make a book interesting. That really comes through. And, you know, I've noticed that uh, authors' first books are usually aren't the best. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so I, I It's think embarrassing to go back and look at it. But, but, but with Sepeti, yeah. uh, I used to go to Nicholas all the time. I didn't know him. I just to say hello, uh, he always scared me because people say he was an underworld guy in the opposite. He came up to me with a copy of You Gotta Have Walk. And he said, did you write this book? And he said, well, he said, man, have I got a story for you. So I interviewed him for 20 hours and I got some of this really incredible stuff in which I, I couldn't publish because it wasn't substantiated. You know, I went to the Oya Savichi Bunko, this nonfiction library for periodicals. <clears throat> I had to learn the history of the gangs, uh, the history of professional wrestling. I had to interview Petty's friends and former workers, find people who hated him to, to verify all this stuff. And then I went back and interviewed him for another 20 hours. He died about six months later. Mm -hmm. but. It was like, it took six years to do this book, all in all. It's like going, you know, going to, back to college and getting a PhD, because it just mm -hmm. took so much research. Well, it's fascinating, and it's such a great way to, uh, like the Tokyo Underworld, it's such a great way to learn about Tokyo, and uh, after the occupation, and how things changed, and how it grew in, into the city it is today. Um, so it's a, it's a nice uh, angle to take, rather than sitting down reading a history book, right? Yes, having been forced to read history books myself, I decided to write one that students would actually want to read. Well, I love history books, even the boring ones, but there's nothing beats a, a book that does, isn't yeah. really talking about history, it's talking about something else and the people that make that history. And then suddenly it's really intriguing and engaging. And there's some, there's some great books in Japanese about the underworld that have never been uh, translated into English. Uh, Kizu Scar, which is a Yomiuri uh, Shimbun writer, Honda Yasuharu, wrote about this post-war gangster who grew up in Seattle and 
didn't fit in because he was Japanese. His father was selling Cadillacs in Seattle. So he went back to Japan and joined the, the Andogumi of, the, of Shibuya. He was stabbed to death, but the story, the book is about his life, and it's really vivid. It's just a great piece of writing. So what is in store then for us with Tokyo Junkie? I mean, I had a really interesting university life I was, because of, you know, Watanabe. I really learned a lot about Japanese politics. So I, I got a job with Encyclopedia Britannica in Japan, and uh, I, my job was to create English language materials. I just fell into it, but I did something that sold quite well. Encyclopedia Britannica, at the time, they were selling English language encyclopedias for $800 a pop to Japanese who couldn't read them. You had these slick salesmen who would go in and say, you know, you want your son to get into Tokyo University, you've got to have these encyclopedias because just having them in the house, you know, will create the right atmosphere. Osmosis, right, yeah. Every night I'd go out and hit the bars in Shinjuku. I'd go out with my you know, my Japanese workers in Britannica. You know, they're all serious, you know, they work 10 hours a day and they're majime and they don't utter a peep or but they get into the bar next door and have a couple of beers and they become different people completely and they have a know what's inside. <laughs> but then I used to go back and I'd always stop into at this snack bar across the street from my apartment. Got the baseball news on there and they always used to have betting on baseball games, small bets, but, and I met this one guy who ran it, and he was some Sumiyoshi. Uh, Sumiyoshi at the time was the largest gang in Tokyo, the, the second largest in all of Japan. He sat me down one night and he said, uh, I'm from Okinawa. He said, Japanese don't like Okinawans. He said, you're from America, Japanese don't like Americans, so let's be friends. Great and he took me out and he introduced me to all these, you know, exotic nightclubs I had no idea existed. He introduced me, I said that I would written uh, my thesis at Sofia University on the Liberal Democratic Party, which ruled Japan. He said, oh, that's wonderful. I said, our gang supports the Liberal Democratic Party. He says, we get the vote out at the election time. They were opening up a nightclub in Shinjuku with hostesses flown in from Manila and Bangkok, but nobody in the gang could speak English. And the girls, of course, didn't speak Japanese, so they asked me to manage this club. And they were going to pay me 300,000 yen a month, which is $3,000 roughly at the time. Uh, a month, and I was already making that with Britannica, but I was tempted to do it until one night we were coming out of a club around midnight and we were trying to catch a cab, and this gangster Jiro was his name. The cabs wouldn't stop at that time, at midnight, you know, you had to hold up your hand like you'll pay four times to the meter. And so he got mad and kicked the side of the cab. Driver slammed on the brakes and got out, and my gangster friend jumped on him and just beat the holy bejesus out of him, blood flying everywhere. I had to pull him off. I said, you're going to get us arrested in remorse. We go back to Higashi Nakano, we go into the snack and sit down and have a drink, and he looks at me and says, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. And he pulls out a switchblade out of his pocket and he sliced his cheek enough so that he could and he 
said, the human trash. That's when I started thinking that maybe it wouldn't be a good idea for me to take this job. <laughs> so I, for a while, I said, listen, I, I have to do a lot of overtime. You know what Japan selects, so I can't get away, but I'm, I'm happy to help you out any way I can. So for a time, I was writing notes to the girls, you know. But what to do and not do, right? <laughs> yes, don't, don't, don't sleep with the customers, and then that became, please sleep with the customers. <laughs> Uh, don't drink too much, that kind of thing. This uh, environment, this situation, I didn't know how to get out of. And my day job was going so well, and then at night it was just, I couldn't separate myself from it. I mean, guys who wind up in organized crime because they can't do anything else. They're incapable of functioning in ordinary society. And these guys, they are. Uh, you know, they have to stay up till all hours of the evening. And so to stay awake, you know, they take pills to stay awake. And then when it's time to go home and go to sleep, they start drinking again. They take pills to go down. They wake up and they're always in a bad mood. Always. <clears throat> That's why they get in so many fights, you know, because of this <laughs> cycle that they're in. How did you um, come about writing a memoir? You had indicated that it wasn't the easiest thing to write. Well, I'd written uh, a 25,000 word multi-part series on the 64 Olympics for uh, the Japan Times. I did that in 2014. And I wanted to turn it into a book and Kawakawa came along who had published Tokyo Underworld in Japanese and you gotta have one. and they'd all been really big sellers. So Tokyo Underworld hit number one at one time. So they said, well, can you turn this into a book? So I started doing it, and it wound up a 175,000-word book. Wow. And it was hard, really, really hard. This memoir must be the hardest thing there is for a writer to do, because you can't tell what's interesting. If it's somebody else's story, right. you know, but to yourself, you can't really tell what's going to interest people and what isn't. And so, you know, my age, I, I showed it to my agent, and she said, nobody's interested in the Olympics. Nobody wants to read about the 64 Olympics. And so I cut it down, and I wound up with a version that's, that Stonebridge is coming out with now. It's 105,000 words, and there's only 1,000 okay. words about the Olympics themselves. The rest is, a, there's a lot about the transformation of the city, how they went from being this third world backwater to this high-tech megalopolis. And so I said, well, I've already written this book, you know, I want it. And so a friend of mine introduced me to Peter Goodman mm -hmm. at Stonebridge, yeah. uh, who really liked it. And so he's doing all the editing. He's a terrific editor. He and this guy, John Sokolov. I just got back the galleys the other day, the first pass galleys, and it's amazing. I've had several books published by New York publishers now, and none of them have done as good a job as the people at Stonebridge Press have. That's great, yeah. They published my last book too, and I have another one, hopefully with them too. They, they do the same job for you, the same, you have the same experience? Um, I think so. Well, you didn't so. need any editing, right? Um, <laughs> of course I did <laughs> Of course I did <laughs> And what about a memoir? Because I would imagine that you would have a li little, there's quite a bit of yourself in your books anyway, so you probably had to put together quite a lot of stuff. 
Oh, it was, it was horrible. The first draft I did was like 250,000 words. I mean, that's like three <laughs> That's words. a lot of words. And, that's uh, a lot of words. Well, I lived a long while. <laughs> there you go. There's a lot of material there. I mean, it's, you know, what? where do you stop, where do you put in? Like, if I'm going to write about what it's like, or you got to have one percent in the back, people want to know. You know, you can get carried away with that. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a whole book in itself, that subject. And the same thing with the underworld. Figuring out what to keep and what to and what to cut was really, really hard. I never had that problem with any of my other books. It was just much easier. I did want to ask you, in your because there are memoirs, do we get to hear about Machiko, your wife? Oh yeah, sure. She sounds very intriguing. Um, you know, having been an officer for the United Nations uh, High Commission of Refugees and yeah. living in all those different places, did you go with her and yeah. live in those places as well? <clears throat> I met her just before I left Japan in 1972. And she had gotten a scholarship to Case Western Reserve to get a master's wow. degree. Okay. And uh, I was had moved to New York, so it was not so far away. You could an hour to fly. Oh, hi, right? Bus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I told you the story about the call from Time Life, which happened just as she was graduating from the case Western went back, so it, wow. um, you know, the heavens and the stars were aligned. 1982 is when she got uh, offered to go to UNHCR, and my career was really going full throttle in Tokyo, so we decided to do both. She mm -hmm. moved to Geneva, we kept the place in Tokyo, and so I would, you could buy these round the world Tickets. Yes, oh, so that was so much great. cheaper, you know, yeah, than going yeah. to. Remember those. So yeah. I would do that two or three times a year. Mm -hmm. I would do the research in Tokyo and go where she was and, and do the, the drafts, the writing. Yeah. I wrote the final draft of You Gotta Have a Mogadish. Mm -hmm. I stood mm -hmm. on the balcony of this Italian mansion that we were living in. It was the former ambassador's place, looking at the Dows out in the ocean and reading it out loud. You know, she was everywhere. She went from Geneva to Mogadish to Karachi to Indonesia to back to Tokyo, back to then back to Geneva, then to Bangladesh, and then finally Stockholm. And she was at a, uh, head of all of Scandinavian countries. She was a representative, which is an ambassador level position. So mm -hmm. she would say, I won't be home for lunch today, I have to meet the Prime Minister, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, trip. And we had a cat, and she took the cat everywhere. <laughs> really? <laughs> that was a lot harder than this. The cat was born in Den Chofu. The second time it died in Geneva at the age of uh, 18. Oh, it did pretty well on that traveling. Cutting everywhere. Yeah. That's great, the traveling cat. I would love to write a book about that cat from the cat's point of view. <laughs> I got a photo of him sitting in the kitchen in Geneva, our apartment in Geneva, looking out the window, sitting on a chair, and he's looking out the window at Lake Geneva, as if to say to himself, what the hell is going on? Where, what am I doing? How did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta stop drinking so much. That's right. <laughs> um, Lastly, what are your favorite books on Japan? Oh, there's a number of them. I like Japan Diary by Mark Gain, which is about the first year of the occupation. They're really outstanding. I liked uh, Five Gentlemen from Japan by Frank Gibney. 
uh, Typhoon in Tokyo by Harry Emerson Wolders, all the books on occupation, Russell Brines, MacArthur's Japan, uh, uh, Embracing Defeat by John Dower, which is excellent. a terrific mm -hmm. book. I like Tokyo Vice a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jake Edelstein. Again, I like the stuff that you did. I liked your your her book about the marathon in Shikoku. Running the Shikoku pilgrimage. Really engaging piece of work. Okay, well, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been a great time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Books on Asia podcast, produced and edited by Michael Palmer. Logo by Alex Kerr. Sponsored by Stonebridge Press, publisher of fine books on Asia for over 30 years. They can be found at www.stonebridge.com. For more interviews, book reviews, and other features, visit the Books on Asia website at booksonasia.net.